0: Welcome to Art Matters. I'm Farron Gibson. This podcast is produced by Art UK, the online home of the UK's public art collections. We're all over the internet, so find us at artuk.org and on your favorite social media channel on the handle artuk.org, spelling out the word dot. There are many ways to approach the topic of eroticism in art, especially if you factor in how different cultures around the world engage with sexuality and the body. Museums around the world are filled with images of nude figures, and if you look at the Welcome Collection on Art UK as one example, you'll see a number of images relating to sex, but erotic art is about more than
1: this. The definition of eroticism means pertaining to the passion of love or concerned with treating love. It can also be extended to concerning or depicting the arousal of love. And that's where it starts getting into perhaps more slippery zones because it engages with sexual love. Or are giving sexual pleasure or giving sexual delight.
0: That's Alice Mayen, co-curator of the recent Dorothea Tanning exhibition at Tate Modern and author of the book Eroticism and Art.
1: If you think about, you know, from the medieval Renaissance through to the Baroque, and as I say, the birth of the modern, the body effectively tends to be the common denominator when we're looking at anything being erotic. And one man's eroticism might be another man's pornography or obscenity, which is something else that we need to keep in mind when we try to define the erotic. But effectively, if we think of eroticism as something which arouses the passions then it's everywhere we turn in art in many ways.
0: In our episode on hair in art we discussed how even something as subtle as a woman wearing her hair down could have erotic connotations. What we may deem as erotic art has historically served a variety of purposes and is therefore reflected in different ways. Our personal viewpoints can also play a role in how we interpret works. For example, so much of western art depicts images of the new body. Does that mean those works are erotic?
1: It often doesn't have to be explicitly sexual. In other words, it doesn't often have to have the unclothed body, the nude or now the naked body. Because if you think about how you treat the body in terms of virtue and vice, in terms of love and lust, often there's innuendo through to something very explicit. So rota can be sort of a, a totally unclothed uh, female body, but it might be staged as a way of treating its audience to the distinction between love and lust.
0: In a discussion of sexual, erotic, or nude imagery, there's scope for confusion about when an image crosses over from being erotic to pornographic. The distinction comes down, in part, to intention.
1: The erotic has, let's say, ambitions beyond literally desire sexuality. The erotic tends to be something that deals with morality, that deals with psychology, that deals with what's allowed, permitted, what's repressed and taboo. So we think of the erotic art literally as the representation of the male or the female body. It can be the heterosexual, the homosexual, the lesbian body, now the queer body. But the pornographic body would be there as a sexual aid, as something that has only got the desire to arouse sexual pleasure So it is the distinction, I think, is more about the message that, as I say, is there in explicit in how a body is represented.
0: It's clear that erotic art is about more than sexuality and is even about more than what's overtly apparent within an artwork. The 20th century offers several examples of the relationship between social movements, historical events and artist depictions of eroticism.
1: I would argue that perhaps it was politically motivated artists after World War 1 who began to challenge how we represent the body because they were seeing the body increasingly be dehumanized with the mechanization of the body and idea of reproducing a new kind of generation of soldiers, almost. They found everything was becoming mechanized. The the senses and the desires and everything was becoming just functional. So you find that with, as I say, the avant-garde globally, mainly across Europe, whether it's in sort of Weimar Germany or in Paris after 1917 or in New York, and that they were a generation of men who either fought in the war, or dropped out of the war, or medical uh, linked, you know, to as doctors in the war and they witnessed that horror. And they were increasingly joined by a generation of what we would now describe as the new woman who chose to reject the institutions of the family and the church and who said, I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have children. I want to have a career. I want to be an artist, for example, a writer. And they actually realized that it was very important that art and eroticism had this kind of voice in society in exhibitions, whether they were in a small gallery or a major institution, whether in a world fair, for example, as a way of making audiences reflect on the purpose of bodies in society, if you like, as one war seemed to only beget another as generations were being slaughtered at the front, as women were being encouraged to produce more children for the war effort, for example. But, of course, it's only really after the 60s, when, again, we have the the, the sexual revolution, as it's called, and this, again, opening up of sexuality fabulously not just in society but in art, that we have generations of feminists, theorists, writers, and artists bringing sexuality centre stage and bringing eroticism centre stage and very much insisting that it is not just a way of addressing power, but challenging power.
0: Our ideas around what can be classified as erotic has fluctuated across time. Some works easily lend themselves to erotic interpretations, but as we'll discuss in this episode, others require a deeper look.
1: I think people often think that there's there's sort of beautiful works of art that are nudes and that are like Botticelli, and these aren't erotic art's, Per se. That's just sort of, you know, almost nice Western art that pleases us. And I always think of those as the kind of almost these these very fleshy works that we think are perhaps a celebration of life and love and therefore unproblematic. But it's important to know that in their day they probably were problematic or if there was an emphasis on the, the fleshy nude, you know, ascending into the into the clouds surrounded by putti. This was very much um, an image of male desire at the time. It was a dreamscape. And often there was a war revolution going on in the streets. So there was an escapism in that form of eroticism. Perhaps what's changed with modern contemporary art is that we get the unruly, the um, often abject, visceral, erotic body that people are More likely to be uh, thrown by, upset by, confused by. Um, And that's why it, it sort of taps into a more psychological dimension. Why do people fear? bodies? Why do they fear the image of the sexual body? Why do they feel that should not be celebrated in a gallery or in a museum space? For example, Nan Golden, who you know did a, a series of works on the battle of sexual dependency, who has self-portraits. I mean, she's using the f- medium photography, which people always find a little bit more unsettling because we know it's a real person taking an image of another real person and we feel that intimacy is perhaps being exploited. But she's someone who addressed not just what we might describe as the underbelly of society, you know, dealing not just with their own friends, but dealing with the AIDS crisis and, you know, images of wonderfully passionate couples, but ultimately their demise uh, from the disease of AIDS, and bringing that into mainstream museum culture and exhibitions was a huge move that she did. But it means that when people go to museums now, or they see Nan Gold in the collection of the Tate Modern, it's also important that they, they sort of see almost the warts and all of sexual lives of eroticism. She has the famous sort of portrait of herself one month after being battered um, of 1984. Now, if you had a picture of a young woman with red lipstick and jewellery, normally that's what we expect in terms of the objectified female body. But what we see is her with a, a you know bloodshot eye, a swollen face because her lover ha- has hit her. And it's, as I say, part of a, a series on the Ballad of Sexual Dependency. And it's about her love affair with a man, about jealousy, about these movements. And for her, she says, art and her camera were just part of everyday life. They were the same as eating. They were the same as shopping. They were same as lovemaking. <laughs>
0: Throughout Western art history, erotic subjects and imagery were often used as educational tools, encouraging high moral standards and cautioning the public not to overindulge in temptations of the flesh.
1: It can be moralizing very much in the Renaissance period. If you think about the nudes of Titian, for example, the Venetian painter, 16th century, the idea might have been that actually you would give a painting of a Venus and Cupid to remind people watching it the importance of not having unbridled passion or unbridled lust and the need to actually think about the mind and morality and to think about, as I say, virtue rather than just vice.
0: One can apply this moralistic interpretation to John William Waterhouse's painting Hylus and Nymphs, which shows Hylus from the Greek story of Jason and the Argonauts surrounded by seven nude water nymphs. His preoccupation with their beauty has put him at the risk of falling into the water and possibly drowning. It's a direct connection between sexuality and peril. In a painting from William Hogarth's A Rake's Progress series titled The Rake at the Rose Tavern, Hogarth depicts an orgy scene in a well-known London brothel. People are drunkenly strewn about the room and the women are covered with sores caused by syphilis. It's one of eight paintings that functioned as a cautionary tale warning against overindulging in vices from gambling to sex. This idea of morality and connection with sexuality pervades the history of art. And it's because of this that there came to be a distinction between art and pornography.
1: It's only in the 19th century when we have actually the terms eroticism and pornography being defined and pinned down with the rise of psychology and also litigation as people are trying to define what's allowed. So pornography, for example, even as a term emerged in the middle of the 19th century to define the writing about whores or prostitutes. And it emerged because of the discovery of the Bacchanalian imagery in Pompeii in the 19th century. So they find images, phallic images, images of orgies, so male and female bodies, in Pompeian works, again, in the mid-19th century. And they decide these are licentious, these are obscene, these have only got a purpose, which is orgiastic. It's there to excite, titillate, it's masturbatory art, effectively. But if you think about the definition... It says it's about the writing about prostitutes and that's why it's associated with a kind of financial and sexual exchange, not a greater good. And it's not until about 100 years later in the 1980s that feminists, quite uh, radical feminists such as Andrea Dworkin and Catherine McKinnon decide that actually we need to really pin down even closer the definitions of erotica and pornography because they argue that the looseness of the terms and the fact that they're not policed enough means that anything that's sexually explicit is invariably or most likely played out on the female body. It represents the idea of body parts, a woman being reduced to her body parts, to her genitals, to breasts, to vaginas. They make a kind of list in that sense. And they say all this is doing is continuing the subjugation of women and printing it up in culture and in art so that the hierarchies between men and women are only being reinforced. But if you were to look at their definition of pornography and the idea of it being the reduction of a female to pictures or words which represent her by her body alone, her breasts, her buttocks, uh, a body part, that would effectively censor out an awful lot of Western art because Western art has always played with the dynamic between the object and the subject, who's looking and who's being looked at. And I certainly would think it's it's too extreme a stance, but as I say, for them, a lot of art that we would define as canonically erotic, as quite beautiful, as idealized nudes, would be something they would argue is, is still undermining females in society and visual culture.
0: The practice of censoring erotic works extends back centuries and varied based on the tastes and fashions of the period. Censorship was even sometimes carried out posthumously, as was the case with some of the works of Michelangelo.
1: There was a law issued at the time of Michelangelo's death in 1564 saying that the genitals in his artworks, even if they were referencing, as I say, biblical subject matter, mythological subject matter, needed to be covered, needed to be censored. And his famous um, statue of David depicting the battle between David and Goliath was adorned with a chastity girdle of 28 copper leaves after 1564 because, again, just the representation of genitals was seen to be something that was too erotic even though the subject matter of David, as I say, was very much about the idea of Florentine rule, the ideal humanist body, and it had a lot of much more higher laudable themes underpinning its nude body. Equally, the Last Judgment, a biblical subject matter, completed in 1541 for the altar wall of the Sistine Chapel. One of the apprentices of Michelangelo, again after his death, was employed to put effectively loincloths on genitalia again to sort of swathe the unclosed body because that was seen as too erotic. But it reminds us that eroticism has always been there. It's just what's acceptable to one audience in one century often might be very quickly decided to be unacceptable to another.
0: You mentioned some examples that were kind of um, regulated in right a way after mm-hmm. the fact. And I noticed that it was, it sounded like it was male figures. And I wonder. Yes. Is, it, is there a difference in the way that eroticism is treated for the male body versus the female body?
1: Well, certainly I think we find that the female body tends to be the the main object of desire and eroticism in Western art in particular. Um, however, that is often counterpointed with the idealized male erotic body too, which is just seemed to be more controlled. So if you're looking at a long list of canonical works from Western art. Invariably, it's the unclothed female body that seems to define particular historical moments through eroticism. The female body perhaps isn't as censored as the male body because we're still used to the idea of virtue and vice being played out on the female body in particular. She seemed to be aligned with the passions, with nature, with something maternal. It's important that her role is procreative. It's important that she's virtuous as a wife and a mother. So often you have a lot of moral encoding of the female body. I think what's interesting is perhaps only when we reflect back on the role of Rodin, Western art, do we look at particular artists like Michelangelo, like Caravaggio, who allow actually a homoerotic message to emerge very subtly, uh, very latently. It's not manifest, if you like, in their art. And often even with the case of Michelangelo, where critics and scholars will interpret his female bodies as sort of a male body with breasts appended to them, because his concern was always with Primarily the male body, which was the subject of his desire.
0: As we've discussed, erotic art isn't always explicitly sexual in appearance, with nudes and lusty gazes. As this is the case, you may be wondering how to recognize some of the more subtle erotic iconography.
1: Well, certainly mythology, the subject of, of Venus is very common. We have her from, as I say, Titian through to sort of Edward Manet's image of Olympia, who's another Venus elongated. Um, Usually there are sort of codes, the ways of encoding the female body will be through details like a cat or a dog. A cat might represent the passions, a dog fidelity again that 's a kind of virtue and vice uh, phenomenon going on. The other element that emerges often too around sexuality and eroticism can be played out on the child, and that we find quite a bit of in baroque through to nineteenth century imagery where you might have the idea of the loss of innocence, the suggestion of a neuroticism where you have representations of a little girl with a broken vase with a dead bird with um, a bouquet of flowers that have lost their bloom, and again that 's where there is a suggestion of eroticism. It's not necessarily an unclothed female or, or a little girl herself. She can often be very beautiful. We get it in, in as I say, the Enlightenment period a lot. Um, but to suggest, again, what are we preserving and what are we sacrificing in society? Um, and that is where there's another form of eroticism, which is just suggested rather than explicit. And you know, quite interestingly played out on that which we hold most precious in society, which is innocence of the child. And that was another form of sort of teaching. So you have that perhaps in, in Fragonard and in Greuse, um, and a move towards how we think about representations of the child. And that goes through to the 20th century, when a lot of avant-garde artists again chose to uh, represent the little girl as somebody is kind of an Alice in Wonderland figure torn between childhood and sexual maturity. And that can be something that they also find, they know that that's something that people are very sensitive to that the viewing audience is sensitive to, what we protect and what might be challenged in terms of adulthood and society and expectations for females in particular. And therefore, that's another way of sort of bringing erotic politics into play through suggestion of the sexuality of the child, which, of course, only Freud, Freud opened that can of worms.
0: After discussing some of the themes and applications of these works, I was curious to know more about their audience. Who was buying these pieces, and who were they intended for?
1: Early erotic arts, of course, would have been, I mean, they wouldn't have been defined as erotic, they would have been defined as religious works of art. But if they were showing purgatory, often those who were sent to purgatory were those who had indulged in the passions, in lusts. And therefore, if you think of an image by Hieronymus Bosch, you might have somebody hung up by their genitals or by their tongue. And that was to show, teach people, illiterates largely, what they needed to do in terms of sexuality in life. And they were given this nightmarish image of of how the passions could lead to a hideous... Uh, torment and purgatory if you didn't live a godly life. Later, if you think about the Renaissance period, I mean, the great patrons of art were the ones who would specifically write to an artist and request an image of the Three Graces or want a series of Titian's Venuses. Um, These are works, so so it's about patronage in that sense. Obviously, it was the the nobility. I mean, you know, Rudolf II or Queen Christina of Sweden or Philip of Spain, who had fabulous collections of, of nudes predominantly female nudes, uh, in their palaces to enjoy as part of their visual culture. With the birth of modern art, the decline of patronage, the rise of bourgeoisie in a whole different market, you find again that perhaps there's an opening up of audiences who might have very different requirements and tastes when it comes to the erotic in art, but you only have to go through any major museum and you will find eroticism on perhaps, you know, in in every almost movement that you turn to. Increasingly also, if you think about public museums now, the great challenge for them, if you think about the Tate Modern, for example, is to ensure that they have a diversity of eroticism, not just for audiences, so that they're not just looking at, you know, dead white male artists and and passive white female bodies, but that actually there are many voices being catered to in terms of audiences going to see artworks and also many voices the other side of the canvas, whether they're, as I say, sort of Latino or whether they're women artists, whether they're radical feminist artists, whether they're dealing with same-sex desire, whether they're queering sexuality.
0: Though we think of eroticism as pertaining to love or pleasure, erotic art can take more surprising forms, such as Duchamp's 1917 sculpture, Fountain.
1: Because it brought the taboo of the body, your uh, is, is a, a male mass-produced object. It was placed in a certain position, which made it look more female, more vulvic, it had different sexual connotations. And it meant that actually the tabooed, real fleshy body, the functioning body, was brought in on a pedestal to the art market and the art canon, and now we've a replica of it, you know, of 1964 in the Tate Modern. And he was someone who, Marcel Duchamp, who's, you know, our our dad, our surrealist, who famously said around 1960 that the reason he brought eroticism into art was because it was the closest thing to life itself. Certainly something we, as I say, we have bodies, so we understand bodies in art. And he said it was closer to life than philosophy or anything like it. It's an animal thing. It has many facets. It can be pleasing. He said it was as useful as a tube of paint eroticism um, because it had that sort of element to it, as I say, that we could all immediately see almost, but of course it was also something that he could use to make people question, what do you want to see in art as opposed to in life? Uh, how much of reality do you want to find in an object or in a canvas? And uh, often you find that eroticism has increasingly been harnessed as a way to challenge both society and the boundaries of art simultaneously.
0: Duchamp worked across several movements and styles and is sometimes aligned art historically with the Surrealists. This seems fitting because surrealism grew out of the Dada movement, for which Duchamp is well known, and believed that eroticism played an essential role in art. The avant-garde movement began in early 1920s Paris and quickly spread
1: across the world, lasting decades. They were an international group that involved people of many sexual persuasions, people coming from across the globe, and they explored sexual dynamics in their Art in a way which challenged masculinity as much as femininity, and which I think, in some ways, intellectualized the erotic and it complicated it. Drawing on the writings of Freud, for example, the idea that we need taboo for the good of society, for civilization, the idea that often same sex desire is aligned to narcissism, and why is that? The fact that he talked about eatable complexes. So they brought a lot of that into play in their subject matter. And examples from Surrealism remind us of how complicated eroticism might be but also how crucial it was when collectives like the Surrealists coming together to show them any voices that could speak to eroticism.
0: Now let's look at two Surrealist artists with two very different approaches to eroticism. First, Dali.
1: What's interesting is that he undoubtedly brought taboo into play in his campuses, but he also brought the homoerotic body into play, and this in the 1920s and 30s. And of course, by the 1930s, increasingly any form of sexual deviancy was being decried as degenerate by by the the Nazis. So that the idea of him exploring same-sex desire wasn't just an exploration of his own self, are an homage to what surrealism was trying to do, but it was a very defiant political move. And Metamorphosis of Narcissus, for example, which is in Tate Modern's collection, is a work which is is quite, uh, of 1937, it's quite amusing because he brought it to Sigmund Freud in 1938 when Freud had moved from Vienna to London, he showed it to him. But it is something again that is very beautiful, very exquisite when people look at it. He described his own technique, which is very meticulous, as kind of hand-painted color photography. Uh, It has that illusionism about it. But you see the image of Narcissus, the male mythological figure, as I say, that we find going back to Caravaggio and earlier in Western art, slowly being encoded as, a, as an image of the homorotic male body. The beautiful male muse, who, of course, Dali was fascinated by. is on a pedestal in that painting. And we have Narcissus kneeling in the pool, holding an egg and flower. And people looking at it might necessarily immediately understand or know still to this day that the myth of Narcissus. They might see the homorotic element, but if you look closely at it, you see that it is exploring a lot around taboo and what is allowed uh, in terms of male desire.
0: Now let's explore the work of Dorothea Tanning.
1: Dorothea Tanning's Anne Kleine Nacht music of 1943 has little girls in a corridor whose dresses seem to be ripped off, or they're ripping them off, uh, heading towards a dark corridor with an open door um, and a sunflower yellow burning out of it. And there's a, a large, rather monstrous sunflower. Uh, in front of them, whose tendrils are reaching out a bit like... a little bit like hands or there's an element of a predatory nature about it. And again, that's crucial because it's about children's dreams, nightmares. Uh, and for someone like Dorothea Tanning, it's also the idea that the the girl is slowly being fashioned into a particular type of female, a woman, and she's representing young girls as sexual creatures, animated creatures, defiant creatures who perhaps need greater liberty. And that's the work that was produced during World War II. So the historical frame helps us understand the kind of ways in which the erotic body is encoded and how they're trying to reach out to different audiences and make audiences more active as they're looking at images that have a sexual element to them. Not just passively enjoy them or be titillated by them but actually question what is the role of the body and sexuality and eroticism in art and how we being marshaled in different directions by those in power.
0: I went into this episode expecting to discuss what turns out to be a surface-level interpretation of erotic art. It's a varied and nuanced genre that evolves with new mediums and
1: changing societal norms. Now, when we're dealing with modern contemporary art, we're so used to photography and new media and digital art that we often think it is the medium that makes it all the more visceral or erotic and that the nude is still something um, untouchable, but actually in its day, it too was something innovative, an artist that kept pushing the boundaries of realism um, we're actually pushing the boundaries often of art th- specifically through the erotic body. So it's always been there. It's always been a subject matter. It's always been a way of testing how an artist can expand their style, their subject matter, their interpretation of historical, mythological, religious themes. And I would say that actually, while we can't pin down eroticism almost every decade, it is the idea that it arouses something in us. We identify with it, we, or we recognize it at least, and there's an element of pleasure. Uh, and that's something that we find perhaps at the, at the heart of all art and why we still need it.
0: to Art UK to view the article for this story and images related to our discussion. You can also do a search to find other images related to this episode, and no one will judge you for searching terms like erotic. To learn even more on this subject, you can pick up Alice Mann's book, Eroticism and Art. As always, thank you for listening. Please be sure to rate this podcast wherever you listen to it, and please join us again next time.